not only adult men, but also women and children are recognized as individuals. Throughout most of history, women were often seen as the property of family or community. Modern states, on the other hand, see women as individuals enjoying economic and legal rights independently of their family and community. They may hold their own bank accounts, decide whom to marry, and even choose to divorce or live on their own. But the liberation of the individual comes at a cost. Many of us now bewail the loss of strong families and communities and feel alienated and threatened by the power of impersonal state and market wield over our lives. States and markets composed of alienated individuals can intervene in the lives of their members much more easily than states and markets composed of strong families and communities. When neighbors in a high-rise apartment building cannot even agree on how much to pay their janitor, how can we expect them to resist the state? The deal between states, markets, and individuals is an easy one. The state and the market disagree about their mutual rights and obligations and individuals complain that both demand too much and provide too little. In many cases, individuals are exploited by markets and states employ their armies, police forces, and bureaucracy, bureaucracies to persecute individuals instead of defending them. Yet it is amazing that this deal works at all, however imperfectly. For it breaches countless generations of human social agreements, rather arrangements, millions of years of evolution has designed us to live and think as community members. Within a mere two centuries, we have become alienated individuals. Nothing testifies better to the awesome power of culture. The nuclear family did not disappear completely from the modern landscape. When states and markets took from the family most of its economic and political roles, they left it some important emotional functions. The modern family is still supposed to provide for intimate needs, which state and markets are so far incapable of providing. Yet, even here, the family is subject to increasing interventions. The market shapes to an ever greater degree the way people conduct their romantic and sexual lives. Whereas, traditionally, the family was the main matchmaker. Today, it's the market that tailors our romantic and sexual preferences and then lends a hand in providing for them for a fat fee.
Previously, bride and groom met in the family living room, and money passed from the hands of one father to another. Today, courting is done at bars and cafes, and money passes from the hands of lovers to waitresses. Even more money is transferred to the bank accounts of fashion designers, gym managers, dietitians, cosmeticians, and plastic surgeons who help us arrive at the cafe looking as similar as possible to the market's ideal of beauty. Here's a chart, or rather, some circle diagram of family and community versus state and market. The pre-modern cycle begins with strong family and community, to weak state and market, to weak individuals, to strong family and community. The modern cycle is weak family and community, strong state and market, strong individuals. Going back, the state, too, keeps a sharper eye on family relations, especially between parents and children. In many countries, parents are obliged to send their children to be educated in government schools. And even where private education is allowed, the state still supervises and vets the curriculum. Parents who are especially abusive or violent with their children may be restrained by the state. If need be, the state may even imprison the parents or transfer their children to foster families. Until not long ago, the suggestion that the state ought to prevent parents from beating or humiliating their children would have been rejected out of hand as ludicrous and unworkable. In most societies, parental authority was sacred. Respect of and obedience to one's parents were among the most hallowed values, and parents could do almost anything they wanted, including killing newborn babies, selling children into slavery, and marrying off daughters to men more than twice their age. Today, parental authority is in full retreat. Youngsters are increasingly excused from obeying their elders, whereas parents are blamed for anything that goes wrong in the life of their child. Mom and dad are about as likely to be found innocent in the Freudian courtroom as were defendants in a Stalinist show trial. Imagine communities. Like the nuclear family, the community could not completely disappear from our world without any emotional replacement. Markets and states today provide most of the material needs once provided by communities, but they must also supply tribal bonds. Markets and states do so by fostering imagined communities that contain millions of strangers and which are tailored to national and commercial needs. 
An imagined community is a community of people who don't really know each other, but imagine that they do. Such communities are not a novel invention. Kingdoms, empires, and churches functioned for millennia as imagined communities. In ancient China, tens of millions of people saw themselves as members of a single family, with the emperor as its father. In the Middle Ages, millions of devout Muslims imagined that they were all brothers and sisters in the great community of Islam. Yet throughout history, such imagined communities played second fiddle to intimate communities of several dozen people who knew each other well. The intimate communities fulfilled the emotional needs of their members and were essential for everyone's survival and welfare. In the last two centuries, the intimate communities have withered, leaving imagined communities to fill in the emotional vacuum. The two most important examples for the rise of such imagined communities are the nation and the consumer tribe. The nation is the imagined community of the state. The consumer tribe is the imagined community of the market. Both are imagined communities because it is impossible for all customers in a market or for all members of a nation really to know one another the way villagers knew one another in the past. No German can intimately know the other 80 million members of the German nation or the other 500 million customers inhabiting the European common market, which involved first into the European community and finally became the European Union. Consumerism and nationalism work extra hours to make us imagine that millions of strangers belong to the same community as ourselves, that we all have a common past, common interest, and a common future. This isn't a lie, it's imagination. Like money, limited liability companies and human rights, nations, and consumer tribes are in their subjective realities. They exist only in our collective imagination. Yet their power is immense. As long as millions of Germans believe in the existence of German nation, get excited at the sight of German national symbols, retell German national myths, and are willing to sacrifice money, time, and limbs to the German nation, Germany will remain one of the strongest powers in the world. The nation does its best to hide its imagined character. Most nations argue that they are a natural and eternal entity, created in some primordial epoch by mixing the soil of the motherland with the blood of the people. Yet such claims are usually exaggerated. Nations existed in the distant past, but their importance was much smaller than today because of the importance of the state was much smaller. A resident of a medieval Nuremberg might have felt some loyalty towards a German nation, but she felt far more loyalty towards her family and local community 
which took care of most of our needs. Moreover, whatever importance ancient nations may have had, few of them survived. Most existing nations evolved only after the Industrial Revolution. The Middle East provides ample examples. The Syrian, Lebanese, Jordanian, and Iraqi nations are the pride of are the product of haphazard borders drawn in the sand by French and British diplomats who ignored local history, geography, and economy. These diplomats determined in 1918 that the people of Kurdistan, Baghdad, and Basra would henceforth be Iraqis. It was primarily the French who decided who would be Syrian and who Lebanese. Saddam Hussein and Hafez al-Assad tried their best to promote and reinforce their Anglo-French manufactured national consciousnesses, but their bombastic speeches about the allegedly eternal Iraqi and Syrian nations had a hollow ring. He goes without saying that nations cannot be created from thin air. Those who worked hard to construct Iraq or Syria made use of real historical, geographical, and cultural raw materials, some of which are centuries and millennia old. Saddam Hussein co-opted the heritage of the Abbasid Caliphate and the Babylonian Empire, even calling one of his crack-armored units the Hammurabi Division. Yet that does not turn the Iraqi nation into an ancient entity. If I bake a cake from flour, oil, and sugar, all of which have been sitting in my pantry for the past two months, it doesn't mean that the cake itself is two months old. In recent decades, national communities have been increasingly eclipsed by tribes of customers who do not know one another intimately but share the same consumption habits and interests and therefore feel part of the same consumer tribe and define themselves as such. This sounds like very strange, but we are surrounded by examples. Madonna fans, for example, constitute a consumer tribe. They define themselves largely by shopping. They buy Madonna concert tickets, CDs, posters, shirts, and therefore define who they are. They buy Madonna's concert tickets, CDs, posters, shirts, and ringtones, and thereby define who they are. Manchester United fans, vegetarian environmentalists, are other examples. They too are defined above all by what they consume. It is a keystone of their identity. A German vegetarian might well prefer to marry a French vegetarian than a German carnivore. 